0: The subject I want to talk about is the story of the blasphemer, as told in the end of the parsha, Chapter 24, verse 10, we read that the son of an Israelite woman went out, and he was the son of an Egyptian man among the children of Israel, and they fought in the camp. The son of the Israelite woman and an Israelite man. The son of the Israelite woman pronounced the name and blasphemed, and they brought him to Moses. And the name of the mother was Shlomis, the daughter of Divri from the tribe of Dan, and they placed them under guard to clarify for themselves through Hashem. So we have a story here. There's this conflict. There's the son of the Israelite woman and the son of the Israelite man. Two fellow Jews are having a dispute. And then the son of the Israelite woman, whose father is an Egyptian, he blasphemes and they bring the case to Moshe what to do. Eventually, the Blasphemer is executed. Now, first of all, this story feels a little bit out of place. You know, we have a whole book, Book of Leviticus here, dealing with the laws of the Kohanim, the Tabernacle, the ritual laws, the purity and impurity laws. And we really don't have any narratives in the entire book. There's no stories here. Maybe you could argue that the story of the two sons of Aaron were qualified, but there's no stories. There's no narrative really the whole book. And here we have kind of plopped in the middle of Leviticus, towards the end of Leviticus, this story of the blasphemer who goes out, who went out, who departed and blasphemed and eventually is executed. So the first question I think we have to ask is, you know, why do we have the story? Why do we need to be told the story of the blasphemer? If you have a sufficiently large population, you'd expect to have some rotten apples, some criminals. The nation is comprised of around 3 million people. One of them is bound to be a criminal. You know, according to Google, the population of Houston is around 2.5 million people. If you look at the Houston police Twitter account, you'll be shocked at how many violent crimes occur in this city on a regular, ongoing basis. And kind of crazy you know if you're a resident of this city to read all the terrible awful shootings and things that are happening in this city i suspect that the houston police runs this account and maybe this is true in other cities as well to boost their funding but again what do i know about politics but regardless in any large population any large set of people invariably you will have criminals And here we're told about the crimes of this man, this unnamed blasphemer, the son of the Israelite woman, and his father is an Egyptian man We read about his crimes and his execution. But why is this story salient? Why is it recorded in the Torah? What is the lesson for us? I want to suggest a different way to look at this whole story and maybe find the salience and the relevance in this story. So what do we have? We have a man. He is the son of an Israelite woman and the son of an Egyptian man. And he has this fight in the camp. And eventually he blasphemes. And they bring him to Moshe what to do. And we're told that he has to get executed and he is executed. But the first word of the entire narrative is Vayetzei. Ben Isha Yisraelis, the son of an Israelite woman, went out, departed. I think if you look at the Rashi commentary on this verse, again, verse 10 of chapter 24 of Leviticus, you see that this beginning, this introduction, this preamble, if you will, for the story is the fulcrum of the whole story. What does it mean, Asked Rashi? What does it mean? He went out. He departed. What does that mean? So Rashi gives us three different answers. The first answer is that he left. He departed. He went out from his world. That's the first interpretation that Rashi offers and that really demands an explanation. What does it even mean to depart from your world? What is this whole idea that you're going to leave? He left his world. What does that even mean, and how is that relevant to the story? That's the first interpretation the Rashi offers us. The second interpretation is that he left, he departed from the story or from the instruction that happened immediately previously to this, right Before this narrative of the blasphemer, we have the mitzvah of the showbread. What's the showbread? The showbread is the 12 loaves of bread that were placed on the table in the tabernacle every Friday afternoon, every Shabbos. And they would remain on the table for the entire week from Friday to Friday until it would be divided up and eaten by the Kohanim. So you bake bread on Friday, And they are placed on the table for an entire week. And then at the end of the week, the bread is divided up to the Kohanim and a new batch is installed. That's what we read about right before the narrative of the blasphemer. So Rashi offers us a second interpretation. What does it mean he departed? He started to ridicule the showbread. How can we have bread that we're placing on the table for God and we're leaving it there and it's getting old and there's nine day old bread that we're offering to God shouldn't the king get fresh bread and that is the second interpretation in Rashi as to what happened to the blasphemer that set him off it was something to do with the fact that he did not like or he had a big problem with the fact that the showbreads We should give the king, i.e. God, we should give him warm, hot, fresh bread, not cold, old, crusty, moldy, weak old bread. That's the second interpretation of this verse in Rashi. And this too demands an explanation. This interpretation is likewise quite inexplicable. First of all, he's complaining about the bread and we're giving God old bread. God never eats bread, and certainly not this bread. After all, it's eaten by the Kohanim. What's his problem? It's not given to God, it's given to the Kohanim, to the priests. Moreover, the Talmud in two places, in the book of Menachos on page 96b and the book of Yoma, page 21a, tells us that there was a great miracle that happened with the showbreads. Namely, that... When you removed it from the table, after it's been there for a week, it was in the exact same condition as it was when it was placed upon the table a week prior. And Rashi even tells us that when they took it out, it was still steamy and hot and fresh, despite the fact that it had spent the entire week on the table. So isn't it interesting that the blasphemer is complaining that God gets cold bread it's been there for a week it's cold it's not fresh when the talmud explicitly tells us that one of the miracles in the temple was that that same bread it went on hot and it remained hot and when it was removed it was piping hot what is there to complain about how could you complain that the bread is not fresh when the talmud explicitly says that when it was removed it was as fresh as it was when it was placed The third interpretation of Rashi as to what it means when the verse tells us that he left, that he departed, that he went out, is that he went out, he departed from the court of Moshe guilty. What does that mean? This man, his mother was a Jewess, but his father was an Egyptian, and thus he belonged to no tribe. And his mother was from the tribe of Dan. So, which tribe does this person belong in? He said, Hey, my dad is not a factor here. I'll just go with my mom's tribe. So, he went and takes his tent and pitches his tent alongside the members of the tribe of Dan. And they say to him, Hey, what are you doing here? Why are you pitching your tent here? So, he responds, Well, I come from the tribe of Dan. And they say, is that so? Is that so? Doesn't the verse say that every person should pitch his tent in the tribe of his father? What tribe is your father in? Don't go be your mother, your father. And the man said, well, my father doesn't have a tribe, so I'll just go with my mom. And they said, no, 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 that's not how it works. You have to come with your paternal tribe, not your maternal tribe that went to a court case in front of Moshe. And Moshe had to rule that indeed the blasphemer was in the wrong. He had no rights to pitch his tent amongst the tribe of Dan. And he was evicted. And when he left the court, he was so mad, he got up and he blasphemed. This person is a bastard. His mother had an affair With an Egyptian, so he was homeless, he had no tribe, and he was evicted. And he got so angry and so agitated that he blasphemed and was executed. So we have in this third interpretation of Rashi a very sad confrontation. He is tribeless, and he tries to appeal to Moshe, but he loses the case. And in frustration and anger, he blasphemes and is executed. So here's what I want to suggest. Here's what I think is going on here. This man is executed in court. To blaspheme by Torah law is a capital offense and thus it can be punished by execution in a Jewish court of law, and indeed, this person was executed. But capital crime in Jewish law, in the Jewish judicial procedures, must follow a certain protocol. In almost all instances of capital crime in Jewish law, capital crime can only be meted out if there are several criteria that are met. Namely, you have to have witnesses to the crime and the witnesses have to warn the individual ahead of time and the person has to acknowledge the warning and say, I know what I'm going to do is a capital offense and I know that you're going to drag me into court and I know I'm going to be executed. And I'm doing it nonetheless. The only way that A person can be executed in a Jewish court of law is if they defiantly insist on committing the crime, despite the fact that they know exactly what's going to happen as a result. And they do it nonetheless. Thus, when someone is killed, is executed in a Jewish court of law, they willingly chose to be executed someone warned them before they did the crime and they said i know it's actually what i'm doing i am of sound mind i know what's going to happen i know i'm going to be executed and i'm doing it nonetheless we would call that suicide this is the first recorded instance of suicide in the torah now for the sake of total honesty there is a discussion as to whether or not a blasphemer actually needs warning. The Rambam apparently says no. Rashi says yes. But there is an argument to be made, and this is getting into the weeds here inside baseball here. There is an argument to be made that maybe in this instance he wasn't warned. Maybe this is an exception. It's not so clear. But certainly, the simplest reading of the story is that he was executed like every other offender of capital crime. And he was warned, and he said, I don't care that you're going to execute me. I am doing it anyhow. If so, perhaps this story tells us what it takes to get someone to make that tragic and fatal and unfortunate decision to commit suicide. The blasphemer knew what he was doing. He knew what it entailed. He did it nonetheless because he did not want to live anymore. And thus, when we read the story, perhaps we can suggest that we can learn valuable insights into what is the inner workings of such a decision and maybe how we can diagnose it ahead of time and perhaps how we can prevent such tragedies from happening. And maybe these three interpretations of Rashi, that's precisely what Rashi's explaining. He's showing us what happened to cause this son of an Israelite woman, who's the son of an Egyptian man, what caused him to decide that he doesn't want to live anymore and to blaspheme and to be killed, to be executed, what caused him to commit suicide by capital crime. And the first thing Rashi tells us is that he departed from his world. He departed from his world. He had a world, and he walked away from it. He said, I'm not interested. My grandfather, blessed memory, explained this Rashi per the Talmud in the book of Menachos, page 29b, The Talmud in the book of Menachos, page 29b, tells us that the Almighty created two worlds, this world and the next world, and this world God created with the letter He, the fifth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The next world God created with the letter Yud, the smallest letter, and the tenth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. This world with the letter He, next world, the upcoming world, the world to come, with the letter Yud. And it's helpful to know what a hay and a yud looked like to understand the Gemara. But asks the Talmud, why was this world created with the letter hay? A hay, how do I describe it? Think of it as like an upside down capital L. So it's like a, 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 a I know if someone knows what the letter hay looks like, this is going to sound crazy. But think of it as a horizontal line on top. At the right edge of the horizontal line on top, there is a vertical line going down to the bottom. So it looks like a, like an inverted upside down L. And then inside that, that little chasm, so to speak, in, you know, in, inside that upside down L, there's a little leg that's kind of standing on its own. Uh, this is, this is, maybe I should edit this out. I know this probably sounds crazy. Google what the letter Hey looks like. If you don't know what it looks like. This world says the Talmud was created with the letter Hey. Why the letter Hey? Well, the letter Hey explains the Talmud. It has some empty space in the middle, but it's not hermetically sealed. You could fall out of it. This world is comparable to a portico where everyone who wants to leave can leave. Continues the Talmud. Why does it have like a half ledge in the middle? Because anyone who wants to return can return. Well, why do you have to have two holes, one on the bottom to fall out and one on the top, on top, on top of that disjointed leg between that and the horizontal and it goes across? Because when you go out, you fall out of your world through one hole, so to speak. You must use a different hole to get back into your world. And if you try just reversing what happened that made you fall out of the world, you won't be aided from above. The Talmud goes on to explain what's the significance of the next world being created with the letter Yud. But the Talmud tells us that this world is a portico. It's like a portico. Everyone who wants to leave it can leave it, says Rashi. Vayate Ben Isha Israelis, this son of an Israelite woman left. What did he leave? What did he depart? He departed his world. He had a world. We've said this many times here on the Parsha podcast. Every person has their own world. The world was created for me. Every individual has their own world exists in their little hay that the Umayyad created for them. And this blasphemer made a decision to depart from it. And on a deeper level, my grandfather explained that he underwent a process of self-alienation. He removed himself. He departed himself from this world. He decoupled himself from his world. He became like a stranger to himself. He had a whole world, but he left. He separated himself from his world. His world became valueless in his eyes. You know, it's amazing. How can it be that the same thing, that people will go great lengths to preserve, i.e. their own life, other people will voluntarily forfeit. I just recently read an amazing book about the Endurance Expedition. You have 28 men. This is in the 1910s. They spent a year and a half in the most appalling conditions floating on ice in Antarctica. And it's incredible to see what lengths they went to survive. It's just astonishing how far a human will go to survive, to preserve their life. And yet... This same species, you'll find people who voluntarily forfeit their lives, who commit suicide. How is it possible? So, of course, we have to give the disclaimer. There's many answers to this question. There are all factors that could be at play. But Rashi here reveals to us a central element to this answer. When man gets severed from his world... He loses that unbreakable will to live. His world is detached from him, and it ceases to matter. What else does Rashi tell us? Rashi tells us that he ridiculed the showbread. Why are you serving God old crusty bread? If you think about it, this is such a strange fight to pick. Of all the things to complain about, this is what bothers him so much? And as we pointed out, it's kind of a nonsensical argument. God doesn't eat it. It's given to the Kohanim, and also the Talmud says it remained fresh. Perhaps Rashi is revealing to us, and of course, everything Rashi gets, I mention this often, but everything Rashi gets, he gets from the Talmud and the Midrash, Rashi is a curator of the best or the most salient of the comments found amongst our sages. Rashi is showing us how someone who is out of their world, someone who has been detached from their world, how do they behave? They're bitter. They're angry. They have enmity towards other people, towards the establishment. And it's not necessarily one where you could judge their words at face value if you heard this blasphemer complain about the showbreads is that really what's bothering him the showbreads he's saying such nonsense the showbreads are fresh and god doesn't eat them that is not really what's bothering him there's something beneath the veneer beneath the surface that's actually at play He has such anger and such enmity towards other people, towards the establishment, and it's manifesting itself in this really crazy, nonsensical claim about the showbreads, but that's not really what's going on. There's something deeper that's at play, that's causing him to behave in this fashion. And finally, we find out really what the crux of the matter is. He tries to pitch his tent, and he says, hey, my mom's from the tribe of Dan. Let me go there. And he is unwanted. They tell him, I'm sorry you don't belong here. And he gets the feeling, Hey, no one's going to miss me if I'm gone. He had no home. Who wants to live when they are unwanted? And he said, I'm fed up with that. And he went to commit suicide. He didn't actually commit suicide, but there were witnesses there, and he knew exactly what's going to happen. They warned him, and he said, I don't care, I'm doing it nonetheless. This is not the world I want to live in. He felt that he had no stability. He had no home. And perhaps we could even argue that growing up as a bastard with a promiscuous mother who did not show fidelity, that probably meant that he was not raised in a very stable home, It's certainly not in a home that would encourage raising happy, healthy, well-balanced children. And that did not contribute towards him wanting to live a good life. And I think if we read the story in this light, the story is now profoundly important. This is a tragic story, but one that is sadly not all too uncommon in our world, in our lives. You know, it's ironic that as life gets better and better and technology advances, sadly the phenomenon of suicide goes up on a uh, generational scale. Apparently, just as was the case with the blasphemer, there are people today who maybe feel the same as he did. They feel maybe unwanted. They feel maybe unloved, they feel unneeded, they feel like they don't have a place, they don't have a home, they have no future, no one's going to miss them, the establishment wronged them, they're bitter at what life gave them, they feel dissociated from their world, they no longer feel like their life is worth living, they no longer feel like their life matters. They don't have a sense of belonging. and That, of course, is a terrible, awful tragedy that could unfortunately end the same way it did for the blasphemer. But I think there's a positive angle to this idea. I think we also learn how to avoid such awful scenarios. We learn about the remedies. If you have a happy home, a harmonious home, where the parents love each other and are loyal to each other. Where there's stability. Where the children are raised with the understanding, with the feeling that they have a place, that they belong. They know that they matter. If you know that your life is important, you know that the Almighty loves you. He created a whole world for you. There's a letter Hey, whatever that means. But there's a whole world that God created for you. And you're the center of that. You have a whole world that's yours. And you're responsible for it. And you have to take care of it. And you matter. And there's something here that you need to do that no one else can. Someone who has those lessons and those principles ingrained in them feels like their life matters tremendously. And they feel a sense of belonging. And they feel like they have a home and they have a place. And again, It's quite inexplicable. Some humans will go to the farthest ends of human effort to preserve their lives. That's the state of someone who is connected to their world, who feels like they have a sense of belonging, while others will simply discard it. And here we see a bit of the anatomy of how such terrible things happen. Of course, there are other factors, no two situations are the same, but we definitely see the tremendous value in learning the story and absorbing its messages. Now, there's another point, and this is probably the most controversial thing that we're going to talk about today. If you read the story with the Rashi and how we framed it, there's an instinct to feel bad for this blasphemer. After all, he's the victim. He didn't choose his parents. He didn't choose the fact that his mother should go sleep around having an affair. He didn't choose these things. Maybe the individual from the tribe of Dan should be a little bit more welcoming and hospitable towards him. Maybe some of the blame of what happened should go to the Israelite man who banished him. And interestingly, in the story, we don't treat him like a victim. To the contrary, he's the blasphemer. He's the villain. Instead of giving him some validation, he is vilified. And this extends to halacha as well. In halacha, in Jewish law, people who commit suicide are ostracized. They are defined as a murderer. We don't mourn them. We don't eulogize them. We don't give them a shred of validation. And we treat them not at all like a victim. Maybe there is an important idea here. Someone who is at the absolute depths of depression, who just feels unloved, no one cares for them, it doesn't matter if they live or die, my life has no meaning. Terrible, awful things that we hope no one feels like that, no one knows anyone, God forbid, who feels like that. But they feel like maybe the way to get some love or attention or validation If I kill myself, God forbid, someone does that, they'll feel like they'll get it. They'll get that kind of reason for living in dying. But the Torah gives the blasphemer not an ounce of love. And I think, and I know I'm speaking about things that are out of my area of assumed expertise, I think it's a grave mistake the way our society treats those who commit suicide. So, for example, have you heard the term someone who died of suicide? That's not factually accurate. It's not what happened. They killed themselves. But I think from the Torah's perspective, the accurate way to describe what happened is not that they killed themselves, but they murdered themselves. And, you know, it sounds harsh because like they're a victim and that, that's, that's how we feel. And that's how we feel with the blasphemer story. Maybe we should have been a little nicer to him and he wouldn't have made this unfortunate decision. And I think there's some legitimacy to that. But there is societal benefit of not giving any bit of recognition or love or attention or victimhood to the people who do these things. Because what's going to happen when other depressed people see the love and the adoration, the people who become like martyrs, who kill themselves? Sadly, this could inspire copycats. Is there blame for the blasphemer's decision to go around? Is that unnamed Israelite man maybe partially responsible? He didn't give love to his fellow Jewish brethren? I don't know the answer to that question. But the way the Torah tells this story is that the blasphemer and the blasphemer alone is a total pariah. He is ostracized. He's the villain. And I think that if our society chose that path of treating people who make this unfortunate decision in that same manner, I think it will be helpful to hopefully prevent other people from following those ways. Those are my thoughts on this issue. Let me know what you think. Send me an email. Rabbi will be at gmail.com. Okay, let's get to this week's a and this week's A&Q comes courtesy of chapter 22, verse 23. This is the verse that talks about Kiddush Hashem, sanctification of God's name, and not, God forbid, the opposite, desecration of God's name. And idea says, a Talmud, what does it mean to sanctify God's name? It means that you have to forfeit your life To not betray God. The Talmud tells us, if someone puts a gun to your head and says, hey, do idolatry or I kill you, you have to die. Commit adultery or I kill you, you have to die. Commit murder or I kill you, you have to die. And if you die and you remain true to your principles and don't violate these cardinal sins, you have sanctified God's name. And there's some more details of when you would have to give up your life. Typically, you would say, you know, if the guy puts a gun to your hand and says, hey, eat the cheeseburger, it's not kosher, it's a violation of Torah law, but to save your life, you're allowed to do it. But in the event of the three cardinal sins, or in the event that it's a public crime that he's asking you to do, or in the event that this is a time where people are trying to soften our resolve of our faith, in those instances, there's a concept of Kirish Hashem, of sanctification of God's name. Die and do not desecrate God's name. And Rashi tells us something interesting about this. The heathen, the criminal, the murderer, has the gun to your head and says, if you don't do this, you don't do the idolatry, you don't do the murder, you don't do the adultery, I'm going to shoot you. Or as in the case of Abraham, If you don't bow down to this idol, I'm going to throw you into the furnace and you're going to be burnt to death. What is your attitude, says Rashi, when you die for God? Your attitude should not be, hey, maybe God will do a miracle for me. Because if you give your life to God and you're going to die as a martyr, but you intend that maybe a miracle will happen to you, then no miracle will happen to you. So Rashi tells us this counterintuitive idea, i.e., when Abraham was thrown into the fire by Nimrod and he survived, he went with the intention of dying. And only because he intended to die did a miracle happen to him. Whereas if he tried to have a miracle happen to him, he would have died. So we have this counterintuitive idea that if you forfeit your life with the anticipation of a miracle, then a miracle cannot happen. Apparently, the only way to elicit a miracle, and even though the heathen wants to kill you, you'll survive, it's only if you don't want it. And the question is why? Why is the mechanism of a miracle only when someone doesn't want it and intends to die for God? That's the question. If you have an answer, send me an email, rabbiwolby at gmail.com. Okay, last week we had a question about the severity that the Torah has for people who commit crimes of the sexual nature. And we brought the Ramban who says that this is so severe and that's why there are so many instances where you would get punished by being cut off the Jewish people, or even being executed for this crime. It's so bad. And the question that we posed is, why indeed is it so bad? What is so destructive and harmful about sexual crimes? After all, like we said, two consenting adults. There's no one being injured. There's no harm, so to speak, to society. Why is this so bad? So a number of listeners gave versions of this answer. I think this is the accurate answer. And that's as follows. The Torah tells us that man was created in the image of God. Now, what actually that means? I don't know but it does certainly tell us that we have something in common with the Almighty. Just as God is a creator, we too, on a smaller scale, where in the image of God, we too can create. And God's greatest creation was man. And we too, via our capacity to procreate, of course, with the help of the Almighty, we too can create another human. And consequently, our greatest superpower is our ability to procreate. And therefore, because this is your greatest power, in the unfortunate event that you were corrupted, you've corrupted the thing that matters most, the thing that was your superpower, and understandably, that would elicit the harsh consequences of, that the Torah has for the sexual crimes. I think that's the most accurate answer. There's other answers, of course, like there always are. But that's it. This is the Parsha Podcast. With the help of the Almighty, have an amazing rest of your week. Have a fantastic and fabulous and peaceful Shabbos. Stay strong. Stay healthy. Thank you so much for listening. I love all my listeners, but especially the listeners of the Parsha Podcast. Signing off from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. This is Yaakov Wolby. Take care. Have an amazing Shabbos. And we'll talk, please God, next week.